As Tim said, don't uh, miss out on grabbing a Bible. There are plenty of Bibles over here on the left-hand side or, or whatever you have on your device. And the sound is definitely much better here in the middle. If you want to be closer in, it's fine to move seats if you want to be more central. Okay. So we are continuing our series tonight on the running father, and um, we're going to be reading again from Luke chapter 15. And tonight, it was difficult, this text, because we're obviously working on the same text uh, for several weeks, and I feel like I'm shortchanging you by not reading the whole thing. So I'm just going to put that out there and still shortchange you. We're going to be reading uh, from chapter 15, and we are going to be reading from verse 13 through to verse 19. And I'd really encourage you, we're trying to press into what God's Word says. There's never been a time, I don't think, in our history where we've needed God's Word more, to be more passionate about God's Word. So we want to help you to handle God's Word well. So that means actually looking at God's Word. Uh, there's, you know, there's no theories, just practice, practice. And so if you can get eyes on the text, that would really help you and I think help me. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to, do, uh, to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. The more I think about it, the more ironic it seems to me that the story was called the prodigal son that we added this title. If you remember, just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the fact that in Middle Eastern culture, the story was never called the story of the prodigal son. It was always called the story of the running father. There was the story of the, the good shepherd, the story of the good woman. Uh, we know that as the lost coin. The good shepherd, we know that as the, the lost sheep. And the prodigal son, which is actually the story of the running father. A prodigal means simply spending money or using resources freely or recklessly, wastefully or extravagantly. I mean, it's ridiculous, really, to sort of define the whole story on how you're spending your money. In fact, it, doesn't, it just couldn't have less to do with the reality of what Jesus is actually trying to say to his audience at the time. Whilst verse 13 of our text shows that to be the case, the son did take everything and go off to a far country and waste all of his money, it's such a minor point compared to the real emphasis of the text you know, the parable of the running father's focus is all absolutely 100% on the lavish love of God and, and, and the, a regard to the obstacles within us to receive that love. And, and I think that's so relevant uh, to our world, to our culture, to our lives. It, it's, it, we were having a conversation with my daughter in the car about exorcism on the way here, not wanting to scare you, but it's for her religious studies homework. 
Because you're saying, but why do people believe all these other things but not believe in the love of God? Surely it's much more obvious to believe in God than it is in all of these other spiritual forces. I was thinking, yeah, but believing in other spiritual forces doesn't demand anything of you. Believing in God can be costly and life-transforming. He's going, oh, yeah. You know, we, we, we see the bit of the Christ story that is kind of cost-free. Oh, this is a bit of moral teaching. Oh, this is a bit about how you spend your money. No, this is a bit about regarding the, the incredible, overwhelming nature of the love of God for you personally, how you're going to respond to that love tonight. It's, it's such a deep challenge, and it seems in all of us, including in me, we can kind of divert away from the radical nature of what God's actually saying in Scripture for some sort of lesser story even though we're reading the Bible, because it's actually more comfortable to me to acknowledge some lesser story. I can, oh yeah, I could be a bit more cautious with my money. It costs me nothing. But being a bit more open to the radical love of God for me, well, that's a challenge. I, I want to make two points again. I quite like the idea of a two-point sermon. I practiced it the other week, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm leaning towards it. Because it's gradually going to kind of shortchange you for more. It's gone from 16 points down to eight, down to four, down to two. Let, next week, just be one point, and then I'll sit down. I, I, want, to, I want to start with two, with two phrases. I've been working with this idea of what I call the shaming son and then the shamed son, because tonight's all about shame. And my first point is what I'd call a macro point. So I want you to sort of laser your view out for a minute and see Jesus on this journey. Remember, this is the, these are the traveling narratives. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. There's this conversation going on between Jesus, uh, his disciples, and a group of religious leaders who happen to be part of his general entourage. And they're having some pretty heated arguments about some really key things uh, around the nature and love of God. So this macro view, as you zoom out your lens, we're talking here about the shaming son. And, and I cannot express to you how significant this is, how, how radically shaming this story is in the first century context. There's no doubt here that Jesus is actually actively trying to provoke horror in the religious crowd. This is, this is like a narrated horror movie for people. And if you could listen to the crowd who was standing around Jesus, they would have been going, oh, no, no, not that, no, no, surely not. I mean, we, we're thinking, here's a young guy who wants to get wasted in Ibiza. Um, and so it's like, oh, yeah, what's, what's new? But actually, it's out of the context of an honor culture in the Middle East, where the family value, the unity of the family, and the honor of the parent was the most important thing in your life. So, so this is totally radical. Jesus is telling a story of what's happening, and at the same time, the crowd are going, no, he couldn't have possibly done that. But what, what I want you to know tonight it's not that he squandered money on wild living that's the really shaming point. It's actually where he spent his money. This story is all about geography rather than finance. Now, when we think about the story again, we interpolate the text for ourselves. Oh, yeah, you know, we live in a global world, spend your money wherever you like sort of thing. It doesn't really matter. But, but to the Jewish audience, it really, really mattered. In verse 13, you see reference to the distant country. So the first thing we know about the second son is he's basically said to dad, 
yeah, I want you dead, and my older brother, I want you dead too. I'm going to take all of the finances that I deserve, which actually I'm not entitled to, put them in my pocket, and I'm abandoning the family. Now, I'm not abandoning the family to Israel to go and find my way within the nation state, which was what would have given me some modicum of honor. I'm taking, I'm robbing the goods of the people of Israel, of my family, and I'm now going to take them to a foreign nation I'm going to spend those goods somewhere else. Effectively, I've taken my inheritance, and, and the money has value not in the way that we think it has value. It has value in terms of it, it's, it's the first fruits. It's, it's the value of the farm being taken out of the nation and seeded somewhere else. Remember, Jesus talks about talents. You know, what are you going to do with it? Like, well, the idea is that you create harvest here, not that you take it out and take it somewhere else. And it's, this distant country is very, very, very provocative for the audience. They're going to be like, what do you mean? Like, what, he left? Like, he left his family, he left his father, he left his farm, and now you're telling me he even left our country? Like, he's gone to, like, basically have fun with the enemy? And it's reinforced by this reference in verse 15 of a pig farmer. He's getting more and more offensive here, and you can hear the audience going, like, this is getting worse and worse and worse. The, the, the son has now taken the money to a foreign land, to a pig farmer. Now, the Jews didn't farm pigs because they were unclean. So the fact that he's taken them to a pig farmer is like taking my money, my inheritance, the first fruits of my farm, to, 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 to this sort of sordid, squalid place. It's the, it's the antithesis of what we are. No Jewish farmer would have farmed pigs. And Jesus is slightly referencing an area in similar to, to, the, to the miracle of the deliverance of Legion, a Gennesaret, uh, which is the territory of Decapolis, which consisted of 10 major uh, Greek cities under Roman rule. And Decapolis was, you know, a cultured, kind of high living, if you like, typically Western, like group of cities which were well regarded, but, but pretty decadent. The key thing is not the morality of the cities, it's the fact that they weren't Jewish. And within them, there was the honor of Zeus increasingly as the, as the kind of regional god. Obviously, we know that that kind of name means more to us than it maybe did to them at the se in the season. But, but Zeus was on the rise within Decapolis, and he was the prominent household god of the time. And they had particular disdain for the Jewish practice of circumcision, particularly contempt. So there was something going on there between the people of Decapolis, who were largely Greek, and the people of Israel, who were Jewish. What do you mean? The son, he he's taken this wealth, he's, he's stripped it away, he, he's, he's basically kind of you know, dis brought disdain and dishonor on not just the family, but on us. And he's taken that to squander on, on living in this other hedonistic city. What Jesus is driving at here, more than we would describe as the sin of the prodigal in terms of wild living, was a wholesale betrayal of his family, his community, and his religion. So, so when we're reading this story, we're so locked into like, oh yeah, the prodigal, he went wild in Ibiza. No, like this is, this is the ultimate offense. He's, he's burned every single bridge. Jesus uses a really unusual word. In fact, so unusual that it only has a single occurrence in the New Testament, and that's within this story. And that's the word we use for prodigal, but prodigal isn't the best description of that particular word. The word is asoto. 
And a SOTOS, which is the particular reference here, is a co-joint between alpha as a negative prefix and sozo, which means saved. So two things which we know are really good, alpha, God is the beginning, and sozo, that we might be saved, are actually inverted negatively. So the alpha prefix becomes a negative, and the prodigal becomes the ultimate unsaved. What's it mean, a sozo? It means a sotos, you are damned. And so Jesus is making a statement, he's painting a picture of this person who has no cultural value, no cultural credit anymore. He's like ultimately the greatest outcast. He's defined by his unsavedness. That's the best way to understand that word. Imagine being defined by your unsavedness between a culture where you were identified within group as a member of the kingdom, even by birth, by descent, by that mark of circumcision, you belonged. And here the prodigal is a sotos, the unbelonger, the unsavored one. For a first century Jewish audience, the cultural shame would have been beyond comprehension. So when I'm beginning this macro point, if you like, on outset, that Jesus was the, he was pointing to the shaming son. It wasn't just the behavior of the son that shamed himself. It was the behavior of the son to shame the community that was also important. And, and you can imagine these religious leaders were going, yeah, 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 totally get, yeah, we're shamed. We're, you'll be totally shamed. So, so Western audience today typically begin to find sympathy with the prodigal. Oh, yeah, oh, the prodigal, poor guy. I mean, we all make mistakes. Like, a first century Middle Eastern audience would not be saying, oh, poor guy. They would have been literally picking up rocks on the street, saying, let's stone him, where is he? No, it's just a story, boys, put the rocks down. You know, their sense of indignance would have been brewing and brewing and brewing. And then... He'd spent all of his money on wild living, the inference being that he was united with foreign prostitutes, which again had great significance in the body about how abandoned he was, that actually he'd made union with those who were unclean. And so, you know, again, Jesus is really provoking and prodding them to sort of say, this, there is no way back here. There is no way back. Of course, it couldn't get much worse unless you could suggest that he then went on to become a pig shepherd who wanted to eat pig slop. And that's exactly where Jesus went. He went the whole hog. So what is he really trying to do? What is Jesus doing here? He's not giving some moral lesson about how you spend your money or who you sleep with. What he's actually talking about is the locked box principle. He's creating the ultimate locked box because in a culture that said you could save yourself if you observe the law appropriately, Jesus is trying to create a context which was entirely and utterly hopeless. Why don't you all stand up for a minute? <laughs> we will fall asleep. Okay, I want you to sit down when you start losing hope. I imagine... <laughs> Imagine an escapologist, someone who escapes from boxes. An, an escapologist is locked inside a safe. There are titanium bands wrapped around this safe, and they're locked with a number of different padlocks. The safe is now encased in one foot of concrete. 
The safe is now stuffed inside a shipping container and welded shut. Wow, you sat down really quickly today. <laughs> this morning, my wife was still here, and I dropped this whole container in the Marianas Trench, and she was still standing up. I was like, you're not that hopeful. Come on. She was just being stubborn. She told me afterwards. I was not going to get away with that. You know, our hope begins to drain when we start sealing this box in concrete. This person's never going to get out. And this is the whole point. The point of the running father is Jesus is creating a context where it's absolutely hopeless. Can you see how he's, he's created the locked box? He started off with the you know, denigration of the father, then the brother, then taking all of the money, then going to the distant hostile nation, then spending it on prostitutes and wild living, then ending up with absolutely nothing, and then farming pigs, which was the ultimate shame for any Jewish person. Everyone in that audience is going to be going, there is no way back. Just like you guys, they would have sat down or maybe stood up and chucked their sandals because the shame that they would have felt, the sense of lostness was absolute. It was asotos. And what Jesus is pointing out is that we've got to get over the idea that we can save ourselves if we're going to be saved. You know, the greatest lesson Jesus could teach these people was that salvation does not come by works, but by faith in Christ alone. They still believed, oh yeah, I mean, you just got to go to temple, make the right sort of sacrifice, and all will be well. You can do it. You know, that mantra really permeates our society. You can do it. The self-help industry in the U.S. alone is worth $10.5 billion annually. That's just self-help. There are self-help books everywhere. There are whole departments within bookstores dedicated to self-help. Sadly, there are not whole departments within bookstores dedicated to God-help because that would be a whole lot better. Because ultimately, as Sotos is our reality, we have got to a place where we cannot help ourselves. And Jesus is trying to point out that we are all lost beyond salvation. We are all the unsaved. We are the, all the Asotos. And actually, there is only one who can bring us back, but it's not dependent on us, it's dependent on him. A society that believed it could save itself through observance of the law was one that needed to know that it could not save itself. In fact, Paul would point out in the New Testament that, that the law itself would, would condemn us, not save us. It had no value to save us, only to identify the sin within us, the asotos of us. And from that place, we might find salvation by putting our faith in Christ. That's the problem. And that's the point of the prodigal. You know, in the season, you can imagine that at that point of being in the pigs, that would have been just a typical piece of rabbinic teaching. And actually, a lot of the leaders were going, yeah, there you are. That's the point. If you abandon your family... God will abandon you. That's it. You get your comeuppance. You get what you deserve in the end. That would have been the chat. They literally would have thought, this is a bit of rabbinic teaching about moral living. We should all sit down now. Thanks very much, Jesus. What they didn't expect was the story was going to carry on. It's like, that's it. You know, you make a mess, then you suffer the consequences. They had no anticipation where Jesus was going to go with this. That's why it got so bad. He's leading them down this pathway to absolute nowhere, only to show them the one thing that they really needed to find, which was actually God can save us. 
the asotos. God can bring us back. More than that, God would run towards us. But I don't want to spoil next week's teaching, whoever it is who's up. So, that's point one. It's a lockbox principle. It's an absolute denigration from which there is no self-way back. There is only a God rescue. I want to push now, just in this last 10 minutes, into what I'd call the micro-problem of the prodigal. And that is the shamed son. So there's the shaming son. He's done all this and brought all this shame on the community. And then there's the shamed son. So I want to bring your vision from the macro right down into the micro now. And imagine that you're sitting by the prodigal who's sitting by the pigsty looking at the pods. The etymology of shame is skem. It's the pre-Teutonic word skem, which basically means to cover. And what I find fascinating here is that the prodigal hasn't needed anyone to point out that he's living in shame, that he's a sotos. Hello. What? I didn't know my preaching was that endearing, that even small children might be interested in the pre-Teutonic word skem, but they've got a bright future ahead of them, I can tell you. When you believe that you're worth nothing, you will hide yourself with anything. And there are no haters in the story who are sitting with the prodigal going, hey, you know what you did? No way back. Hey, remember that? Your dad, your brother, remember that? Wild living, remember that? Well, you spent your money on who you slept with? This country, you shouldn't even be here. There's no one there with him. Jesus doesn't say, and there was a group of mockers who came and sat down in the pigsty with him and started telling him what he'd done wrong. He didn't need a group of mockers. It was all there, right inside of him. He knew he didn't belong anymore. When it says that the prodigal came to his senses, I imagine that the Jewish audience would have probably started to heckle Jesus. Even at the vaguest suggestion that the prodigal might be able to go home like they would have just gone no 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 way there's no way back had the circumstance played out culturally he probably would have been stoned most likely at best cast out there was no way back what the audience would have agreed with was the son's estimation that he'd forgotten his right to sonship yeah that's right you're not a son anymore. How our hearts condemn us. For each of us, there's that feeling of a sotos. I'm unworthy. You know, within the context of church, we look around and make comparisons and go, oh yeah, oh this person is so holy, or this person leading worship sang so beautifully, or you know, this person preaching was so passionate about the Bible. Like, I'm just an imposter. I'm hiding in the pews. I don't deserve to be here. The things I've done, the places I've been, the way I've lived, the mistakes I've made. I, I, I can't really resume a position at the table. I can't be any more than a distant cousin in the family. I'm no longer son. I'm no longer daughter. The thing is that Jesus builds this narrative because he wants to lead his audience into a revised understanding about God's nature, not the nature of the son. Because we're so egocentric, we're reading the story from the perspective of us. Oh, I'm the prodigal. No, you're missing the point. The point is not that you're the prodigal. The point is that God is good. 
The point is that God will break through. The point is that God will not abandon you. The point is that God can, can lift you out of the Marianas Trench when you're covered in concrete. He can rescue you. He can do that work. It's about how good he is, not how bad you are. You know, I think the reality for the prodigal was the reality that we experience in shame. That shame provokes us to trade a true identity for any identity that we believe might make us more socially acceptable. Now, we live in a world that's brilliant at trading identities. You know, people seem to have multiple identities in multiple settings, and that's apparently okay. I'm watching the next season of Love is Blind. Am I the only one? Yes, a few hands at the back. Thank you for being honest. You know, and, and you know, I, I've got to, as someone who's interested in dating and all that sort of stuff, you know, this sort of thing is, is fascinating to me. But I find it remarkable to see how people are different in different rooms with different people. I'm like, wow, amazing. But when you, when you pick into that inconsistency, what you see is the same shame reality. If I can just glean, if I could just glean a tiny modicum of belonging in the setting, if I could just feel some sort of connection, some sort of validation, some sense of love or, or agreement with someone, I'll be anyone, I'll do anything. I'll dress anyway, I'll say anything you want me to say. Just, just give me some sense of acceptance. The sun doesn't need external condemnation, just as most of the world doesn't need to be told how bad they are. They already feel it. Within barely a heartbeat, the son has exchanged his identity as the son of a wealthy and successful farmer for that of a low-paid farm worker. And like him, so many of us trade our identity as a child of God for some sort of pseudo-belonger. I, I wonder tonight whether that really resonates with you, whether you recognize that you've accepted a second standard in the micro, that you're sitting there saying, God, I, you know, I'm, I'll come back, just give me any kind of low-pay job, you know, in the kingdom of God. I'll, I'll keep the pew warm with my bum for like the next 20 years. Is that enough? You know, can I just be that person who sort of in there looks guilty all the time, doesn't really participate? Just, you know, just let me be that person because that that's all I'm worth. The weird thing about the son is he never, he never stops being the son. Like, if he goes back, does he ever stop being the son? Do they go, hey, you're not the son anymore, you're just the hired hand? No. Biologically, he's always the son. He's never going to not be the son. He's just going to assume an identity that's not his own. And this morning, if you want to know what the banana thing was, I spent a long time super gluing a banana back together because I took out the banana and I put a carrot inside it instead. It was one of the stranger things I've done in Christian ministry, I've got to be honest with you. My son, I tied, I tied the skin of the banana back together and I put brown string around it. And my son said, Dad, why are you tying up a banana? I said, you'll find out later, son. It's very important. Ministry work. It still has no idea what ministry work really is. Anyway, but yeah, we, it did work quite well this morning as someone came up to enthusiastically eat a banana only to open up and find that it was actually a carrot hiding in the skin of a banana. You know, we are so often that carrot hiding in a banana. I know, it's an odd illustration. Don't try and explain it in the pub to your friends afterwards. But, but just hold on to that reality. 
that you know, we would do anything to cover ourselves. You know, that Adam and Eve, the first thing they did when they sinned was to feel shame and to run into the forest to make a covering for themselves because they needed a covering to feel like they could exist anymore. They wanted to be hidden because they felt like they didn't belong. The primary hunger that we have is to belong. And that's our primary call because we're created for community. And so when we believe we don't belong, we find a way of pseudo-belonging. We become the carrot that hides inside the skin of the banana. And we are all doing that to a level tonight. You know, authenticity or vulnerability, they're not, it's not about being a bleeding heart in the public square. It's about being truly known and knowing others truly. And here Jesus is he's sharing a reality. The son says, I can exchange my shameness, my unbelonging, for something that's not full belonging, that's not true identity, but something that is passable. Maybe I'll get some food. Maybe I won't be starving to death. Maybe I can kind of take up a poor position in God's house. But restoration is coming. Jesus is setting his audience up to find a completely radical new view of God, a view that says, actually, despite the honor culture, despite the exclusion, beside the unbelonging, besides the asotos that they all agreed with, God would come running and bring a revelation of true identity to the son. This is my son. He was dead, but he's alive again. Come, let's celebrate. The point is that Jesus has painted a picture of the ultimate shame. It couldn't become a darker story in that period. It isn't some cautionary tale about getting lost. It certainly isn't some sort of moral warning. It's a radical statement that says, yes, you're never beyond the reach of the love of God and the restoration of your true identity. Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our guilt. He also died on the cross to free us from shame. And he died on the cross to restore us into belonging-based relationship with God. That's what Jesus was setting them up to understand. Why don't we stand as we pray? Maybe you just want to open your hands and sign if you you've been open to God this evening maybe right now as we stand before the Lord you could place yourself in the story maybe you're a honor culture person who's agreeing with Jesus that this man is getting what he deserved maybe that's the voice in your own head that you should get what you deserve Maybe you're the self-help person who thinks, ah, I can get myself out of this mess. I'll rebrand. Or maybe you're the all is lost person. There's no way back. Wherever you stand in this story, God is over it all. And he is longing to reach down 
and welcome you home. He promises to restore your true identity as a child of God, to give you the confidence to live in the reality of who you actually are. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that we might abandon ourselves to help. We might abandon ourselves to you. Only you can do this, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, would you, would you silence the voice of shame in our minds that would call us to take a second identity to hide behind? We long to be the people you've created us to be, to live the lives you've called us to live. We're going to make this real in a way physically as we receive the bread and the wine. So I'd love you to just to take a seat for a moment as we prepare the table. But don't disconnect from what the Lord is doing in you as you receive bread and wine as a sign of the meal that you receive as a full member of the family of God.